This is the Seahawks Draft Show, part of the Field Goals Podcasting Network. I'm Brandon Schultz, and joining me is Rob Staten of Seahawks Draft Blog. Rob, we're just weeks from the first round of the NFL Draft coming up on April 25th, and uh, I, I know you've got to be getting pretty excited about it. Yeah, it kind of dawned on me this week that it's we're getting to April now. Like The month of March just kind of flew by. Free agency came and went very quickly, and here we are. So uh, we're less than a month away from the draft, and... Um, in fact, this time next month, we will know pretty much what the Seahawks have done and the direction that they're going to go this season. Looking forward to it. And uh, a few topics on board for today. I want to talk about, Rob, you recently did an article looking at the first three rounds and the tiers of players and how that kind of measures out, you know, which players, in your opinion, are surefire first round picks and other players, you know, as, as far as their talent measures out, second and third round. I also want to talk about why the Seahawks are meeting with some of the top prospects in the draft, you know, guys that are destined to go in the top 10 and the Seahawks should probably not have any chance of selecting. And you recently did a story about how the Seahawks look at pressure percentages. So I want to get to that, but let's start it off with your look at the first three rounds, Rob, you, you put the players into different tiers and what did you find going through that exercise? Yeah, I think one of the, the biggest things I wanted to be able to express something that I've been talking about for a while that I, I don't think it's a really deep first round in terms of what the teams do is they don't separate 32 players into first round prospects and then another 32 into second round and so on. What they'll generally do is they will grade a player and they will give them a grade. So, for example, if they believe that Quinnen Williams is a really great player, which I imagine that all teams do, they will call him a legit first-round pick. He will get a first-round grade. And they will generally give out about, you know, it's usually between about 10 and 20 first-round grades in a draft class. You don't get 32 very, you know, it'd have to be a fantastic draft class for that to happen. And my feeling all along has been that there aren't many legit first round prospects in this particular draft. But what you do have is a really deep second, third and fourth round. And I, I kind of wanted to put together an exercise that would kind of emphasize that. So I thought, well, the best thing to do is just to watch as many players as possible, which is what I've been doing for the last month, and then put them in the categories that I think fit it, just for the first three rounds to emphasize that. And what I came up with was I, I had 10 legit first round prospects. I had four more that I think are borderline first, second round. You know, some teams may rate them very highly. Some would rate them a little lower down. There were two players that I called injury flag first round prospects, you know, players that should be first round graded, but were probably going to drop a little bit because of in serious injuries. And then second and third round. And I found that there were 42 second round prospects, at least according to sort of the, the players that I've watched. And then another 41 third round, which kind of shows that real depth in that second and third round range. And even this week, I've been watching players and adding players to those lists because I think that there are even more, that there are some guys that I just haven't been able to watch yet that could easily fit into that second and third round. So I think that this draft class, if, the best thing to have for me is either a top 10 pick or so you can get one of the best of the best or it's then to have a lot of picks in the second and third round and really tap into the depth in this class. Which leads kind of to the argument of one of the things that I think as Seahawks fans have been expecting leading up to the draft is that eventually once we get to the draft, the Seahawks are going to trade back and try and compile second and third round picks. 
Yeah, and I think that it's going to be – it's making for quite a complex situation, really, and it's certainly in the way that we analyse what they're going to do because they're going to trade down. They're not going to pick someone at 21 and then just pick four times in the draft. And, and if they pick someone at 21, it's going to be very hard to accumulate picks trading down from the back end of round three. So um, they're going to trade down. It's Yeah, there are a few things they're going to have to consider. First of all, what is the kind of range that they want to trade down into? A year ago, they traded from 18 to 27 but didn't want to move down again because they wanted to make sure that they were at the front of the queue, whether you agree with this or not, to to, to start the, the run on running backs. And they took the guy that they wanted to in Rashad Penny. This year, what are they going to be thinking? Is it a case of they want to trade down into the late 20s again or the early 30s? Are they willing to, to maybe trade down once move into the late 20s, the late first round, and then move down again, which is what they did before they took Paul Richardson um, in 2014 and, and Malik McDowell when they took him as well. Are they going to do that again and sort of move back a, a couple of times, fill out their draft board and then get a guy? Um, or is that, uh, and that's fine and that's an all right plan, but then you also have to be cautious of, you know, are there certain players that you really feel like you want to have? Is there a position that's going to run dry if you don't take a player before a certain range? You know, how, how many players have come off the board at a certain position, which enables you to still fill out your board. So there are lots of things the Seahawks have to consider here. I think the only certainty is they're going to move down, but it does make it quite a challenge to actually predict and project what they're going to do. I, I do want to go back, though, Rob, and ask you about your your top 10. Um, you know, for example, you have Andre Dillard kind of as a, a borderline first, second round. I mean, obviously, He's going to be likely to go in the first round, right? Because he is one of the top tackles. Um, but what was what kind of gave you pause between putting a guy like Andre Dillard in that group of 10 uh, at the top? I think that one of the things with Andre Dillard is that he is a very good pass protector. There are a couple of little technical flaws of his footwork that I think you can work out. But certainly in terms of him getting into a stance, him playing inside out and, and, and being able to protect on that left tackle side, you you can't find too many flaws there. And I personally think, you know, he's going to go in the top 20. I've, I've put him here in the borderline first, second round. I think he's going to be a top 20 pick. So, you know, that's, I, I just think from a grading point of view, right. I think there are going to be some, some issues with his run blocking. You know, is he going to be a complete left tackle? Is he going to, to be able to match up against a, a much higher level of talent. There are things about Washington State's scheme, which certainly helps him out. And I just gave me pause for thought. You know, whenever you have a player who you're not really talking about in the first round conversation going into the year, they then suddenly emerge. He had a very good combine. Uh, you know, the, there are lots of things to like about Andre Dillard. I just have a hard time thinking of him as, you know, a legit first round pick, which for me has to be the best of the best. These are the players that physically have got major upside that have been highly recruited through high school that have, have been able to deliver to a to an extent consistently through their college careers and you know that really a, a true first round grade should be reserved for the for the top top players i mean i have been andre dillard's in a, in a group of four with josh allen who many people believe is going to be a you know a top five lock Christian Wilkins, who many believe is a, a top 10 prospect. Some feel completely opposite about that, but some people believe he's going to be a very high pick. And Cleland Farrell, who I like a lot, but I've kind of got him in that range as well. I think it, really the, the 10 that I've picked are the elite of the elite. And I think Dillard is just a notch below that, but certainly a first-round prospect. But I just wanted to create some separation between the best of the best and the next group. One of the things that jumped out at me looking at your second-round group is the amount of receivers 
And, you know, with the Seahawks kind of in the position to where they may need to take a, a wide receiver, they, they might really want to take a, a wide receiver, especially considering, you know, the injury issues with Doug Baldwin that we've been hearing about over the past couple of weeks. Uh, you got Marquise Brown, Paris Campbell, DK Metcalf, Debo Samuel, Terry McLaurin, uh, Emmanuel Hall from Missouri, AJ Brown from Ole Miss, Nikhil Harry from Arizona State, you know, a really deep group of wide receivers in, in this uh, pack of the second round players. Yeah, and it's going to be fun to see where the, where the run starts because there's a lot of talk at the moment that Baltimore Ravens are very interested in DK Metcalf if he lasts that long, and if not him, that Paris Campbell could be their target. So what I think this really plays in favour for the Seahawks because if teams are thinking, right, okay, I want X receiver, whether it's Metcalf, whether it's Campbell, whether it's Marquise Brown, for example, we need to get ahead of the Baltimore Ravens to make sure that they're not going to take our guy. It makes the 21 pick very appealing. So I think that's a good thing, especially when you have teams like the Kansas City Chiefs. Suddenly there's a lot of mystery about the future of Tyreek Kill because of uh, his eventful offseason, if you want to put it like that. Um, they may be looking for somebody who can come in and be a long-term answer for them because I don't think they could, they're certainly not going to offer him a huge extension now after what's happened. So they look at someone like DK Metcalf, who's fantastic downfield, will be a perfect fit for Patrick Mahomes. Paris Campbell's got the 4-3-1 speed. Marquise Brown's got that downfield ability. They're going to look at players like that and move up and get up to 21. If that happens and that 21 pick ends up being spent on a receiver and then the Ravens take one at 22, it kickstarts a run. Then you've got teams like Green Bay, for example, later in the first round at pick 30. Are they going to seriously consider taking a receiver in that range? I think that's very likely. They've lost Randall Cobb. They need some talent around Aaron Rodgers. I think they will certainly look at that. You've got other teams who may want to trade back into the late first round. Buffalo Bills, for example, may want to go and get a weapon for Josh Allen. The New York Jets might want to, if they trade down a couple of times, may, may even trade out the top 10 if they get somebody wanting to go up for one of the quarterbacks, may trade back again and take a receiver in that later portion of round one. We've seen teams trade dramatically back in the past. If they acquire a second round pick from trading down, maybe they take someone in the top end of the second round. So I think there is going to be a run on receivers. It's, it's kind of working out where it's going to be. If the Seahawks trade down once or even twice, there still should be somebody that they like though. Um, and there are players that fit the Seahawks. You know, they love the, the, the receivers that run a 4-4 or faster. And you've, you know, the names that you, you mentioned that I've got listed, I think all of them, except in Kiel Harry, run a 4-5-3 are in that kind of range. And there, there's certainly a lot of appeal for this class. And, and it's a position with the future of Doug Bowl with a question mark that they're going to give a serious look to with their first pick. And if not the first pick, I'm pretty sure they're going to draft a receiver in the first four rounds. Let's talk a little bit about the strength of this draft class. And everybody's talking about the defensive line. You have five in your top 10 that are on the defensive line, whether it's defensive tackle, defensive end or edge rusher, uh, you know, another three in that borderline first, second round, and then Simmons with the injury flag. So, you know, you got 10 guys kind of in that first round group. And that really seems what the strength is for, for a guy like Jeffrey Simmons, who isn't going to play in 2019. How far do you think he falls? So it's a tough question to answer because on tape, you know, you're looking at a guy that would have been an absolute lock for the top 10 and he's got an ACL injury and, and technology has advanced so much and science has advanced so much that, you know, an ACL injury is not the, uh, the, the concern that it might have been a few years ago. I think generally in, in a lot of sports now, Achilles injuries are, are more concerning than knee injuries. So you have to look at that and weigh it up. I think that the one thing that's going to hurt him is that I think teams these days want to get impact with their first draft pick. You know, they don't want to draft somebody who's not going to play at all, especially because you you essentially waste a year of club control. The way that the league's gone, the way that the salaries are rising, you know, Seahawks fans are very aware of that at the moment with four key players going to be out of contract next year. Um, teams are looking for value in the draft. You know, there's a number of 
big name free agents who are unsigned because teams, I think, are waiting to the draft now to see if they can fill out those needs with much cheaper players, create some competition rather than going and signing some like Ziggy Ansa on a on a you know a seven eight million dollar one year contract. So that's the way that the league's going. And if you draft Simmons, you're essentially l- losing a year of that club control. You're basically writing off a year of cheap um, quality because he's not going to play or he's, he's barely going to play in 2019. But on, on the other hand, he he's somebody, when you just look at him, the, the name that really sticks out is Ndomokan Sue. He's got that kind of... Fr- the thing with Sue was he was a you know plus 300-pound defensive tackle um, but barely had any any body fat. You know, his, his body fat percentage was very low. He was more muscular and built very solid looking player and you know very rare that you would get a defensive tackle like that and that's what Jeffrey Simmons is like in college he wasn't the pass rusher that Sue was at Nebraska but he was a terrific run defender he would often occupy two three blocks Um, he was really good against the run and I think if you get him into a defense that has got threats on the edge and and demands more attention across the line he can be a big time pass rusher as well so I think at the moment I would think that Probably the early second round is likely for him. Late first is a possibility for the teams that are con- in contention already and just want to sort of stash somebody who's really good, come back to them in a year's time. You know, someone like New England, you could imagine having a look there. Maybe even the Packers, you know, teams that are who expect to be competitive this year, especially the Packers because they've already got one first round pick, maybe afford to spend number 30 on a guy who's going to be a red shirt. So that, that's the kind of range. I think anywhere between 30 and 40 would be kind of where I'd expect him to go. Well, and I'm even thinking as Seahawks fans, you know, we're used to our first round picks. Well, either not having a first round pick at all or the first round pick not seeing the field really until uh, the the second or third years, you know, with Rashad Penny. You know, we didn't see a lot of him last year. So uh, maybe maybe that's a direction that Seattle could go. Is he a, does he have the type of fit uh, in, in, in terms of body type, in terms of athleticism that the Seahawks look for on the defensive line? Oh, yeah, absolutely. You know, in terms of his physical profile and what he's done on the field, he's definitely a player that they would be interested in. I actually wrote an article about this, though, when he when he heard himself and people were talking, you know, is that going to move him into the kind of range where the Seahawks could consider him now? And the conclusion that came to is, like, personally, I, have, I would have no issue if, if we're sat here now and the Seahawks are picking, let's say, at 35 or something like that, having traded down. And then they took Jeffrey Simmons. I would have no issue with it. You know, I would write an article talking about the positive that Simmons will bring in the future and, and stuff like that. Would have no issue with that at all. But there's no real precedent for them doing this. You know, they've always sought to take a player who, even if he doesn't end up having the impact, you, you know, you mentioned Rashad Penny there. There's other players as well that have not done anything in their first year. You know, the, even not the first pick, Rasheem Green last year didn't have much impact at all, did he? So, you know, they're, they're a team that is comfortable redshirting these guys, developing them and trying to build them over time. Um, but they haven't ever taken anybody who is injured, who, who can't actually get out on the field and compete in training camp and, and be, a, you know, a factor in terms of a competition early on. So until that happens, you know, we've, we've got pretty much 10 years of, of backstory now to and precedent to, to research and study from with Pete Carroll and John Schneider until they actually go down that injury redshirt route with a high pick. I'm, I'm going to sort of steer away from that and not think they're going to go down that route. But if they do take Jeffrey Simmons, I think as a long-term investment for the future, he's an incredibly talented player and he could be a real anchor um, in the middle, whether that's with Jaron Reed or in replacement of Jaron Reed if he leaves as a free agent next year. 
Let's talk a little bit about free safety, because even though Pete Carroll, he says that, that he's pretty comfortable with who they have in the secondary, it doesn't come across that way when you see some of the picks that they've been meeting with, whether it be at the Senior Bowl, meeting with Nasser Adderley, uh, their, some of their top 30 visits. You know, they've reportedly been linked to Darnell Savage, Chauncey Gardner-Johnson. And so it seems like free safety is a position that they're looking at, you know, a strong safety too. you got a Monty Hooker, Juan Thornhill, uh, both players that they've been linked to out of that group. Are there any particular players that interest you? I know I, I see quite a few of these guys among those second and third round picks. Yeah, there are definitely players that I like, you know, whether or not they end up being with the Seahawks or not um, remains to be seen. I'm a huge fan of Armani Hooker at, at Iowa. Um, he's a player that kind of played nickel more than free safety, but I just think he does a terrific job. He's kind of like a, a stocky, smaller player, but really agile, tested very well at the combine, ran well. Short shuttle was really good. Uh, three cone was good. Um, I think if you're looking for somebody who can play in the slot as that kind of big nickel type, I think he's an ideal fit there. And I think anybody who watches him play for Iowa will come away really impressed, was considered a big time leader at Iowa captain and and really well respected so uh, he's a player that i really like marvell tell at usc i think is somebody who's got untapped potential i think his best football is going to come at the next level they could try him at outside corner with his size and his length his supreme agility and a fantastic combine very explosive very quick again somebody who could act as a big nickel could be trying at free safety as well or even outside corner i think marquise blair is going to go a lot earlier than people think i think he could even even sneak into the second round he is a guy that is very long and lean, but plays safety like a linebacker. I mean, absolutely hammers people. It's just a hitting machine. And he's going to create that fear factor on the second level. You know, if there's any crossing routes in there, teams, I mean, he's not built like Cam Chancellor at all, but teams are going to be a little wary that Marquis Blair's back there because he packs a punch with his hitting. So, and, and he ran very well, much, I think, tested him a lot better than people expected at the combine. I think he's a guy who's going to be, have been rising in the last few weeks as, as teams sort of reassess after that combine. So I, I won't be surprised if Marquis Blair goes a little earlier than many think. And then, you know, you've got the usual names. Jonathan Abram, I think, is a big nickel rather than a free safety or a strong safety. I think that he's got, you know, a lot to light, a lot of tenacity about his game, a lot of grit, ran better than expected at the combine. You've got Chauncey Gardner-Johnson, just a really sparky, fun player with massive personality. Great, great little sparky guy who talks, constantly talking on the field, loads of energy, a bit boom or bust at times. Uh, certainly when he was playing at free safety, he liked to take risks and got burnt a few times, but, you know, a playmaker as well, made some plays. Uh, you've got your usual, like, you know, Taylor Raps and people like that as well. Donnell Savage is a real riser after he ran in the four threes at the combine. So there's an awful lot of players to look at. And, and the Seahawks are meeting with it. I'm not really that surprised because I don't think that's necessarily a review of, wow, the Seahawks really feel like they need to address the safety position. I think, like a lot of teams, they're probably quite surprised at the way these players performed at the combine. You know, I, nobody was taught. I'm not just I was I wasn't expecting it at all. Nobody who writes about the draft or, you know, talks about the draft and podcasts or on the TV or whatever was saying, wow, this safety class are going to run amazingly well at the combine. And then they all turn up and run in the four fours or the four threes. So I think actually what teams are doing after the combine is they've gone back, restudied the tape, have felt like maybe their dossiers on all these players are incomplete, need to have them in again need to go and do private workouts with them and kind of reassess probably a good 10 or 15 players in this class because they all did so much better than anybody expected at the Combine. So I think it's it's a bit of due diligence, but I do think the Seahawks will seriously look at the safety position at some point in the draft in the first three or four rounds. And it could be that the guy that they draft is not necessarily a replacement for Tedrick Thompson and Delano Hill. It could be somebody who's a replacement for Justin Coleman, somebody who could be a big nickel who can also compete at free safety. 
There's one guy on your third round list, Rob, I'm a little bit intrigued about. I want to ask you is uh, Jakai Polite, because he's a guy who it seemed like he got a lot of talk about being a first round type of talent. You have him in your third round tier. And I'm wondering if that is based off of what you've seen from the tape or if you're also taking into account uh, some of the things that have happened at the combine with him not performing well there and at his pro day. And if that dropped him down into that third round for you. Yeah, it's definitely what's happened since. Um, On tape, you saw a player who had got incredible energy, was a a really productive edge rusher. They they had a couple of guys, Jabari Zuniga, who's who's on the other side, and then you got him on the other, and they were just a terror all year in the SEC. Really good season. Fantastic effort as well. I mean, that's the one thing that Polite had over the last couple of years was his effort. There was this one video from that did the rounds from the 2017 season where he kind of chased down, I think it was a running back or receiver. He chased them down, you know, a good 40 yards um, and, and made an incredible play. And it kind of went viral a little bit there. You know, just a player that you did not expect to have the off season that he's had. And, you know, I'm not really bothered about the combine interviews and stuff. You know, that, that doesn't matter to me. It's, it's the way he performed to, to come out at the size that he is, you know, he's a smaller edge rusher and then run close to five seconds in a 40 yard dash and then say, oh, I'm injured, I can't do any of the other workouts. And then to hear that, you know, that was a bit of a cop-out from his behalf, that his, his preparation hadn't been good, and he was kind of trying to save himself from damage limitation at that point. Don't do anything else that's bad, that, that can damage your stock anymore, like an agent said to him, just get out of there, stop doing it, stop working out. Um, and then to go to the pro day, and I actually watched the pro day footage from Florida, and he just looks horrible, Brandon. I mean, he just looks like he's put on... I mean, he's trying to put on weight, you know, and, and you look at Brian Burns. Brian Burns has put on weight since the end of the season and actually looks great for it. You know, his body is in he's in terrific shape. And then you look at Jakai Polite, he looks like he's, he's put on bad weight. I mean, he just does not look in shape. Uh, he ran even slower at his pro day, which is remarkable. You know, he's had a month to prepare for this. Go on, so, you know, repair your stock at your pro day. He ran even slower. I think it was like a 497 or something like that. Jeez. All, and then he and then he mailed it in again and said, "I can't do it anymore. I'm still not healthy from the combine." I mean, it's just it's not good. Now, the name that actually springs to mind with all of this, and I, and I don't know what you think about this, Brandon, is Vontae's Perfect. Actually, I'm not saying that he and Perfect are the same kind of character because they're not. Right. You know, Perfect. Perfect was a you know not a back to when USC were recruits recruiting him, and then Pete Carroll pulled the uh, the offer and ended up at Arizona State. You know, there were there were reservations about his character even back then. Um, he was still expected at, at Arizona State to be a first or second round pick. Vontae's, when I, I wrote an article saying that I thought he was going to go undrafted, and Vontae's Burfex agents, who is also um, Brandon Meebane's agent, or at least he was at the time, sent me an email saying he'd bet me a Coke that he would go in the first round. Mm. Uh, <laughs> I, ne- I never got that Coke, by the way. Um, but Burfect just, it, it was his workout. You know, he just, he was, he was being talked about as a first, second round pick, even despite everything. Turned up at the combine. Had a horrendous workout, was awful, had a terrible offseason, ended up going undrafted, and has had, in fairness, a somewhat controversial career, but still a decent NFL career. You know, he, if you if you just took away all of the nonsense that comes with Vontae's birthday, you'd actually say he's a pretty good linebacker. And this is the thing with Polite for me, and it's why I've kept him in the third round rather than dropping him out completely, is that I still think there's a chance that he could have an NFL career like Perfect, but he's got to get into a team, he's got to get in shape, He's got to get his mind right, and he's got to get out there and compete. And if he can do that like perfect, then he can still be a very good NFL player. But right now, it's very hard to be positive about his stock. 
Well, Rob, I, I'm going to respond and tell you exactly what I think of Polite and, and why he might be a, a potential target to go after. But first, let's take a quick break. We'll come back. We'll, we'll talk about that and talk about some of the reasoning why the Seahawks might be looking at guys that are going in the top 10. And we'll be right back to talk about that. All right, Rob, we, we talked about Ja'Kai Polite and, you know, kind of the off season that he's had. And one of the things that I wanted to say was that I look at it this way. There's guys who are gamers, right? They, they show up when it's game time. They're ready to go. They, they're prepared and and they will uh, and they'll perform. And, and we've kind of seen that from from a guy like polite and then once it's once it's the offseason you know you talked about perfect uh he, he had his offseason issues for some of the reasons that it would be a flag to other teams i think that then it makes him a value if, once he drops down and you know if he's going in the third or, or the fourth round you're getting a guy that's you know very talented but i think maybe once he's around coaches once he's in the structure of football you know if, if football is your thing and you and you live for that you know, you don't live for running the the forty yard dash or running these drills. No, you, you want to you want to be studying tape. You want to be out there on game day. And so, it, as long as you're hearing from coaches that you know he's he's putting in the work during the season, you know, leading up toward the games, that's where I would put more of the emphasis on. If he's not so excited about uh, running the running the forty or you know making sure that he's keeping fit enough in the offseason when you know that you're not going to play a game for months and months and months that would be less of a, a flag for me yeah i think some good points there and i think the other thing to consider is that these players often get bad advice you know i don't know who J- jakai polite's agent is and i don't even know what jakai polite's agent's been telling him i mean he right. may have been telling him stuff and polite's just been ignoring it i don't know um but the problem you get is you get these undersized pass rushers they're, they're littered throughout college football you know these guys who probably play at about 235 240 maybe 245 and then you look down the list of the sack leaders in the nfl and they're all 265 plus so the they they feel like to improve their stock they've got to gain weight they've got to turn up at the combine weighing a certain amount they've got to be explosive and quick still and do all these things um so they put on weight and then actually you know that can work for some guys it's worked for brian burns it's worked for Montez Sweat. They know they're still amazing athletes. They put on good weight. But there are some guys who just, they're naturally 235, 240 pounds, and they can still have a role in the NFL. It doesn't necessarily mean that they're going to be huge sack numbers and, and prolific powers. They're not going to be JJ Watt or anybody like that, but they can still have a role. You know, be who you are. And for me, Polite looks like a guy who has been trying to add weight ever since the end of Florida's last game in that bowl game. And it's just not working for him. His body just looks wrong. He doesn't look like an NFL athlete. He looks like some guy who wandered in and they said, hey, do you fancy a cracker, a pro day? And that's, you know, that, that's not what he looked like on the field. He looked in fantastic shape for Florida. And I think that perhaps he's been given some bad advice. Gain some weight. Get up to this is your target weight. Get to the combine for this. When, if anything, you'd probably be better off saying, stay at your game weight, stay in game shape, get to the combine, be who you are. Everybody expects you to be an undersized pass rusher. Everybody was talking about Ja'Kai Polite as a top 20 pick during the season, knowing he was an undersized pass rusher. There was no need for him to add weight. There are teams that run three, four formations like Green Bay who could easily fit him into their system. You know, they had Clay Matthews rushing the edge for all those years. They can fit Polite into that kind of role. He didn't need to add that weight. And I think it's kind of just messed him up. I think his body's a mess. I think he, he's not in the kind of shape that he should be. And 
you know, now what he's relying on is, and I think you're right, there is going to be some value at some point because what a team will do, a smart team, is they will draft him at some point after this fall. They will get him into his game shape again and they'll end up getting a really valued player. They'll get a player who should have been in the top 20, probably in round three, and they'll turn them into a really exceptional pro. So I actually think there is something to be said for, you know, a lot of people are going to write Jakai Polite off because of his off-season. You're right. There's a chance for somebody to get some value here not sure whether it'll be the Seahawks or not. You know, they're not a team with a, a load of picks that if they go defensive line with their first pick, are they going to take polite? Not sure on that. But you sort of get to that third round range. If he's still there, a smart team will take him. I, I just think keep an eye on the Dallas Cowboys. They're a team that mm. has taken, you know, Randy Gregory and people like that in the past. You know, they give, they, they're second, they're the, the city of second chances or third chances or fourth chances. You know, Jerry Jones is always willing to roll the dice on somebody. So I, I wouldn't be surprised if they took polite, they need an edge rusher. And and say, there you go, you know, get back back in shape and, and be a force for us. Well, I know I can put on weight pretty easily just eating fast food and drinking milkshakes. So, I mean, that, he, he might just be putting the weight on the wrong way. You know, other guys in the NFL programs, you know, eating, eating protein and working out, you know, that's that's the way they generally put on weight. So it's a very different type of thing. But uh, let's uh, that kind of leads us into talking about some of the pressure percentages. And one of the things Pete Carroll was at the owners meetings he's, uh, here recently. And one of the things that uh, he discussed in his interview was looking at pressure percentage versus, you know, just kind of total pressures for a player. And, and that seemed to spark you to write an article on your website, Rob. Yeah, because um, this, there is some data out there. I mean, you, you, so the exact quote was, we're just looking for activity and problem makers. Usually you can look to that pressure percentage. How many times when they rush, did they affect the quarterback? So, you know, we went out and had a look, you know, is there anybody who's, who's put this data out there, you know, this pressure percentage? And pro football focus, bless them, have, have managed to put this statistic together. Now, for some reason, they don't include pressure percent. They have the pressure percentage data. They often tweet about it. They haven't put it in their draft guide. So I'm not able to run through every prospect and, and tell you, you know, every player in the draft, their pressure percentage and everything like that. And and the problem with pro football focus is that when it comes to stuff like this, they're amazing. You know, their, their data on, you know, pressures and stuff like that is really useful. And then you've got their grades, which is just some random guy watching the tape, not knowing the scheme, not knowing what the intention, what the play call was, passing a judgment and then giving like some random number that nobody knows what they've come to and saying that this guy's a 93 grade for this game or this guy overall from his college career deserves an 86. Right. And you've got no idea how they've come to that assessment. So you can kind of just throw all that stuff away. But with the pressure percentage and the pressures, it's a really useful resource. So we had a look and, you know, to, to see if we can find anything from this. The, the big thing to point out at this stage, Brandon, is I haven't got the data from previous years. So, for example, if Frank Clark had got an amazing pressure percentage, then we could go, aha, so we see this actually does matter. You know, this is what his pressure percentage was in 2014, for example. Right. So who are the players who compare to that? Who we can look from in this draft class. So we've got no means of a comparison here. All we can do is list the pressure percentages. But it was quite interesting reading because Josh Allen at Kentucky was going to go very early. I've been kind of wondering why he's going to go very early because I've seen getting blocked by tight ends for Kentucky. And as much as he's a really good pass rusher, when you're getting blocked by tight ends in college football, that's not a good sign for when you face offensive tackles in the NFL. Right. But he had an amazing pressure. Like nearly a third of his rushes led to a pressure, which is insane. Like the next best one that I could find was like 23.5%. And he was at 29%. So just why Josh Allen's being considered such a high pick, because he, he he creates pressure on a third of his, his snaps when he rushes. 
you've got guys like Anthony Nelson, Oshani uh, Zimenez, uh, Old Dominion, Jalen Ferguson, who's had a bad pro day and a bad combine, but seems to be, this is one of the reasons why teams will probably consider him still quite early because pressure percentage, Joe Jackson at Miami, Chase Winovich is up there, Montez Sweat. You know, these are all guys who at least a fifth of their rushers are getting home. So I'm looking at that and I'm thinking, okay, that could tell us something there. These, these are guys that the SEAL could potentially be looking at. Well, and it's curious that those top two guys are, are both guys that, well, they met with Josh Allen at the Combine. Uh, he actually admitted that he lost the staring competition that the Seahawks like to hold with, <laughs> uh, with some of their draft uh, potential draft picks at the Combine. But uh, the Anthony Nelson now reportedly one of those guys that the Seahawks may be meeting with in Seattle. That's very interesting. I didn't know that. So that, that's, that's a very interesting note. Um, I, first of all, I would just like to say, I'd love to know who is the designated starer for the Seahawks. You know, who is I the one? Too. I just, I've just got this mental image of Pete Carroll stepping up to the plate. You know what Pete's like, you know, Mr. Competition, you know, really having practiced his staring going into the combine. And I just, it's just a great thought that Pete's sort of leaning across the table, staring with these guys um, or John, or John Schneider for that matter. <laughs> right. Yeah. Who, who is, who is their top guy and are they ranked? You know, do they, does Pete Carroll rank them? And uh, you know, is it sort of a, you know, a, a competition among the team? But uh, I, I said a link to a top 30 visit. That no, it was uh, it was just that Nelson had had actually met with all 32 NFL teams, so it yeah. could have been part of those combine visits. But but still, the fact that uh, Nelson could be among those guys that they're looking at and him having such a strong pressure percentage, uh, he's one of those guys that could be available more in the second round or or late first round when they have a pick available. You know, I, I want to throw the gauntlet down to the beat writers in Seattle. One of them has got to find out who does the staring. Yes. You know, there's been there's been a few press conferences now with Pete and John did one at the at the at the, uh, the combine. And this needs to be asked. And then if and if an answer is not forthcoming, they need to do some digging. They need to find out. They need to get into the inner sanctum of that of that VMAC and find out who does the staring. I think on the you know it, Josh Allen um, and and Anthony Nelson and people like that, they, they've got to, if if this matters, if pressure percentage doesn't matter to them, then these are names to keep an eye on. And I think you look a little bit further down the list. LJ Collier is a player who they are is, is either visited the VMAC or is going to be visiting the VMAC on an official 30 visit before the draft. Right. Um, he was up there. You know, his pressure percentage is very similar to Brian Burns and Montez Sweat. It's better than Cleland Ferrell's. It's better than Ja'Kai Polite. Um, so he's in good company there. He's he's amongst, you know, the top pass rushers in, in this draft. You know, the big names are your Josh Allens, your, your Montez Sweats, your Chase Winoviches, your, your Brian Burns, your Cleland Farrell, your Ja'Kai Polite. And for LJ Collier to be amongst that list, no wonder they're bringing him in in a visit and spending a lot of time looking at him because he's a player that that is, like I say, he's got great company there. Um, and, and I just think that is something that we need to bear in mind. I'm not sure that we can, you know, I, I would I would project they're going to take Anthony Nelson with their first pick purely off the basis of this. But it, as, as things sort of come together and we, we kind of bring together the kind of players that they might be interested in, I think players that have got the, the traits that they look for, the grit and the competitive attitude that they look for, if they've also got great pressure percentage, then there's a decent chance they're going to be on Seattle's radar. Well, one of those guys also in that list among the top pressure percentages is Rashawn Gary at 15.8%. Now it's only half of a guy like Josh Allen, but he's far away and above the, the rest of the pack. Uh, but they did meet with Josh Allen. They did meet with Rashawn Gary. They they also met with quarterback Kyler Murray at the Combine. And that was kind of before he was even being talked about as the, the first overall pick. So 
you, you wonder if they're meeting with him based on, you know, the potential that he could fall to later in the draft. He could still fall to later in the draft. I'm not totally convinced that Arizona is going to take him with the first overall pick, but they're definitely making enough noise that a team going up and wanting to uh, put together a big trade for the number one overall pick that at least that's being generated for them, whether they're doing that or whether it's just uh, through discussion in the media. I don't know. But why meet with some of these players like Gary and Josh Allen? Yeah, I was thinking that myself, especially when the Rashawn Gary one came out. And that's why I wrote a piece about it, because I, I gave it some thought. It's very tempting to speculate that the Seahawks have got something brewing, that they're going to make a huge trade somehow, um, maybe trade Frank Clark or even Russell Wilson for that matter, and suddenly be in a position where they're having to look at Josh Allen and Rashawn Gary and Kyler Murray and the rest of these guys in the top 10. Um, I think the truth and the reality is, is probably a lot more boring than that. And it's, <laughs> it's as simple as this, that the Seahawks are not just, you know, their process of going through this draft is not just about who they're going to draft this year. It's about putting together a profile and a dossier on every prospect so that two, three, four years down the line, what if a trade opportunity comes along? Are you going to want to know everything about that guy when you're thinking about making that trade? Of course you are. You're going to want all the information that you can get. What about in free agency? What about if a guy's cut? What if, what if a team has issues with a certain personality fit and he doesn't work somewhere else? But do you know what you think? We've met with this guy. We felt very confident about his personality. He scored well in that regard. We're going to make a deal for him. Just to give an example of, of a situation like that, Marshawn Lynch is somebody who did not work out in Buffalo. The Seahawks get him for a ham sandwich in a trade, and he's ended up being one of the, the most legendary players in franchise history and maybe a Hall of Famer down the line. You know, it's these kind of preparations that you have to make three, four, five, six years down the line. You might actually be acquiring these guys. And you only have to look at the 2013 drafted as an example for this. Right. Um, the Seahawks did not have a first round pick in 2013 because they traded it for Percy Harvin. So there was no reason to meet with any of these guys, really, because they were never going to draft them. But they ended up signing Luke Jokel. They ended up signing Dion Jordan. They signed Barkevius Mingo. They signed DJ Fluker. They traded for Sheldon Richardson. All five of those players were in the top 13. You know, most of the top players that were in that draft um, ended up in Seattle eventually. And sort of having that background information is important. I just wonder, actually, I mean, look, I'm just throwing this out there. I don't know if that's true or not. It might be a wrong thing to accuse the Seahawks of it. What if they feel actually they've signed all those guys from 2013 and in hindsight they wish they knew a bit more about all of those guys? Because Jokel didn't work out. Mm -hmm. Jordan was more of a project, I guess. Mingo still with the team. Fluke certainly has worked out. Sheldon Richardson, they traded for one year and then they let him walk. Maybe they thought, well, if we'd just done a bit more homework on Sheldon Richardson in the draft, we maybe wouldn't have made that trade. Right. I don't know. Maybe that's the kind of like the self homework that they're doing, you know, trying to trying to do things better moving forward. And that might mean meeting with a few of these players. And in, in the topic of Gary in particular, I think that Rashawn Gary could easily be their number one prospect in this draft class. He's exactly the kind of player that they look for, you know, with his size, his range, his speed. He's, he's, he's got the most upside in this entire draft. And it's not really that close. He is the best. He has the highest ceiling of anybody in this draft. So for them to meet with him, with the prospects potentially adding him some point down the line, I'm not surprised at all that they met with him. Well, and I was listening to 710 ESPN. Uh, Jake Heaps, former Seahawks quarterback, was on the radio kind of talking about the, the reasoning behind uh, Kyler Murray in particular. And one of the things that he said, and it kind of it, it leads into what you've been mentioning, too. So they'd have the information, but it's also he talks about it being in the if they ever are in position for a top 10 pick, they're going about it. They're getting reps now 
for when they have that uh, that capability of drafting in the top 10. So they know some of the questions to ask if a guy that they evaluate as being a top 10 pick and going on and being successful now, you know, two, three years down the road, they have that experience of who the guys go that go in the top 10 is their evaluation then correct? And so can they feel good about making that pick in the top 10 down the road? So it's kind of about getting reps for, for when they have that ability. And, and so that makes a lot of sense to me too. And I think that in, it's also in preparation. Now you mentioned it, it's not real likely that they trade Russell Wilson or they trade Frank Clark, but because Frank Clark does have that franchise tag designation that allows other teams to come along and make him an offer the Seahawks could end up with two first round picks. And even if that's a pick that's toward the end of the first round, you know, if, if, if they get a first round pick or two of them in compensation for Frank Clark signing a deal with another team, I mean, that, that has the potential of happening. And if that if that's the case, you know, they have then have the ammunition to move up into the top 10, the top 15 to take one of those guys that do have a true first round grade. Yeah, I, I, it's something that we've talked about a lot really on, on the blog about the potential of, of trading Frank Clark. My, my personal opinion is I don't think the Seahawks have any intention of trading any of their guys. Yeah. I, I think, don't think so that, um, I, th- I think that um, whether it's, and whether that's right, I'm not saying that's the right thing or the wrong thing. You know, if, if in 12 months time, Frank Clark has signed for the Buffalo bills, for example, for $22 million a year. And the best thing the Seahawks are going to get is a 2021 third round comp pick then you could certainly make a case for saying they should have dealt him a year early and actually got some value and had a first-round talent on their roster with four to five years of club control rather than just losing Frank Clark with one one last hurrah with him in 2019. I could certainly... That's a watertight argument. I would not dispute that. I just think that the Seahawks feel differently. I think that Pete Cowell is going into these situations with the mindset that while ever there's a chance of re-signing these guys, we're going to give ourselves the best chance to get that done, that he feels there's a process. And the problem with Frank Clark is that the process is going to involve taking this through to July the 15th, I think it is, when the deadline is to actually negotiate a new contract, then he has to either sign the franchise tag or hold out. And I think that the Seahawks will have to use that date as a bargaining point. So when it gets to sort of mid-July, they're going to have to say to him, look, this is our last offer. Do you want the security of a three, four-year contract extension on massive money? Or do you want to play out 2019, potentially get a serious injury and impact your stock the following year? Then maybe have to take a one-year deal somewhere to try and rebuild your stock. Or do you want security of the new deal now? And when the clock's ticking, things change. Minds change. We saw it with Russell Wilson in 2015. As soon as you've got that deadline there, this is when we're going to stop negotiating. This is when you've got to make a call. It's funny how often players will actually take the money because why you know you, you've you've got the guaranteed cash there. So I think that they've got to let that process play out. And the problem with that is that July fifteenth deadline is a couple of months after the draft. So they don't they're not able. So if they trade him now, they're kind of just sort of giving up. They're not even giving themselves a proper chance because if they set a deadline before the draft with Frank Clark, Frank Clark's people will just go, "We'll trade him then." Trade him to a team who's going to give him the the twenty million dollar a year contract now, and we'll take that. So you, you really you're just sort of screwing yourself in terms of any chance of keeping Frank Clark, and it makes it very difficult to try and get uh, any kind of deal or a trade done before this draft. So I don't think that anything's going to happen there, and I think it's the same in Russell Wilson. I think with Wilson, and I, I've probably thought too much about Wilson's situation than I, I should have done since the end of the season, but you know, I've written a lot of articles about it. I think what's going to happen is again that that um, training camp deadline is going to come around and the Seahawks are going to say to Wilson, here's our best offer. 
you know, we'll make you the highest paid player in the league. It's not going to be $40 million a year, though. It's going to be nearer 35. Um, do you want to accept that? Because it's going to be very difficult for Russell Wilson to walk in that locker room full of guys on minimal salaries and say, hey, guys, I'm going to lead this team. By the way, I might only be here for one more year because I turned down a, a record contract to be the highest paid player in the NFL. <laughs> you know, people are going to wonder, hang on a minute, who's this guy? You know, this, there's already always been those questions about Wilson, the leader. Does he really want to walk in there and try and lead 90-odd guys, having turned down the deal to be the highest-paid player in NFL history when he's married to Sierra, and there are some guys there probably sleeping in the car during training camp? You know, this is it's, it's a very awkward situation for the team leader to be in, and I actually think that deadline might actually work in Seattle's favour and they could get a deal done with Wilson before camp because of that. So I think that there's, there's sort of processes that need to play out, but it means that the likelihood is that they're not in any kind of mindset to trade any of these guys before the draft. Well, there is one more point I wanted to make with uh, the some of the reasoning with meeting some of those top guys. And one of those reasons is, you know, they could be getting information on on some of their teammates, too. I mean, Rashawn Gary, uh, Chase Winovich, you know, is the, the edge rusher, rusher that he plays next to. And that could be a player that they're interested in. He meets a lot of the measurables that the Seahawks look for in a pass rusher. He was up on high on that list of pro, pass rush productivity. And, you know, with the uh, gosh, with Kyler Murray. You know, there's all kinds of guys at Oklahoma, you know, whether it's Cody Ford, Drew Samaya, uh, you know, Marquise Hollywood Brown. Uh, there's there are quite a few guys that the Seahawks could have interest in. And, you know, it'd be one way to get an, uh, some information from a different perspective on on other players that they could be interested in. Certainly it could be, could be the case in some instances. I think with uh, the thing about Chase Winovich is that I, I, I kind of think he's probably one of the players you have to do the least amount of background checks on. I think one of his quotes um, from, this was before the bowl game against uh, Florida. They uh, they said, because Rashawn Gary didn't play in that game, and I think one or two others didn't either. I think the quote was, yeah, I've got it. You'd have to kill him before you, to get him off the field for the Chick-fil-A Peach Bowl. <laughs> you would have to kill him to stop him playing in that game, was uh-huh. his quote. And he did play, and he played, he played his tail off. Um, he's, he's just the most fun, passionate, committed football player you will ever like find. I mean, the guy he is, he is a, a living, walking football machine. Um, so I, I kind of feel like you, what you see is what you get with old Chase. I'm not sure that you have to do too much digging around on him, but the, the thing with Chase Winovich is that I really like to watch him play. He is such a fun player. And as you mentioned there, his pressure percentage is very high. The only problem is, is that he just, he really doesn't kind of fit the Seahawks. You know, he's, he's not that, they, the, the players that they've taken to play edge, a long, lean pass rushes, and he's he's short and squatty. And I know that his arm his arm length isn't thirty three inches. That's kind of been their threshold. It's pretty close. Uh, it's very close, though. It's it's a quarter of an inch away. Um, but he just doesn't look long and lean like his torso. You know, his his body shape is is squattier. Not not really the kind of he, look. I'm not saying that they definitely won't take him, but he's just not. You're kind of looking back and saying, where are the examples that they've taken a guy like that? He would look perfect uh, next to Puna Ford, Rob. He, he would. No, I, he, listen, I'd love to see him in, in, in a Seahawks jersey because you, you're never going to worry about what he's going to be doing on a Sunday. You know, he's, he's, you know, with all that talk about Michael Kendricks playing on a broken leg in his last game for Seattle last season, going to chase it, play with no legs. You know, he's, he's that kind of guy. You know, he's just... He's an incredibly intense guy. I think there's, I don't know if anybody's um, subscribes to Bob McGinn football. Bob McGinn used to uh, write for the journal Sentinel in Wisconsin and annually used to sort of pull scouts in the league and, and get little tidbits uh, about certain players. Um, 
and then put them in his articles and he, he's doing this now via a subscription and I, you know, I subscribe to it. I would recommend that people do for the draft coverage. Um, and this is one of the quotes from a scout on Chase Winovich. It says, I would just say, don't confuse production with talent, nor activity for achievement. You've got to have traits to win. Now, people will second guess that last quote. You've, you've got to have traits to win. But generally speaking, that is true in the NFL. And I'm afraid to say in this instance, Chase Winovich, he's, he's got some of the speed and the agility. Mm-hmm. Has he quite got what it takes to take that step up to the next level and have the same kind of success that he had at Michigan? I think it's a tall order. And the other thing you've got to remember is that he had Rashawn Gary, people not Rashawn Gary for his production. Rashawn Gary was asked to hold down an edge so that guys like Chase Winovich could make plays. Right. And and that sort of impacted Rashawn Gary's production a little bit there. And it sort of helped the likes of Winovich and Bush make the – Devin Bush, that is, the linebacker, make the plays that they did. I think you kind of got to keep that in the back of your mind. Well, Rob, really want to thank you for joining me on this first this, – this inaugural episode of the Seahawks Draft Show on the Field Goals Podcasting Network. And uh, hopefully we'll, we'll be doing this more leading up to the 2019 draft just a few weeks away. Yeah, exciting time. Looking forward to it, Brandon. Check out SeahawksDraftBlog.com at Rob Staten on Twitter. And if you want to help support the show, you can always go to GetInTheFlock.com, become a member of the flock. And uh, we'll be doing some live shows coming up where you'll be able to ask questions live as we're doing the show. If you get in at the $12 level and above, GetInTheFlock.com. And with that, just a few weeks to the draft. Go Hawks! Go Hawks!